Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the Nature Jobs podcast. I'm Julie Gould. Taking on a PhD in science isn't a decision that should be made lightly. It's a big commitment and often a labour of love, although that's no bad thing. However, before you start one, it's not a bad idea to find out what other people think about doing a PhD. Last month, Nature Careers has done some of the work for you and it published the results of the graduate student survey where thousands of PhD students answered questions about what it was like to do a science PhD. David Payne, chief editor at Nature Careers, finds out more. Every two years, Nature Jobs takes a global look at the life of PhD students by undertaking a very large survey. We ask dozens of questions about graduate students' hopes, their dreams, their ambitions and their frustrations. And then we present some of the key findings in an article for Nature Careers and attach the raw data for people to drill down into. Our graduate survey for 2017 delighted and surprised us. We had more than 5,700 responses from all over the world. So if you did take part and you're listening now, thank you very much. So, uh, so I'm joined by Jenny Kedros, who's a research manager at Shift Learning, who helped us out with the survey. So I'm just going to start by asking you, Jenny, if I was about to embark on a PhD and I'm maybe a little bit nervous about the prospect, what main conclusions would I draw from the data? I think you could be very encouraged by the data in the survey because overall PhD students at the moment are really satisfied with their experience and they're really enjoying their experience. Uh, they get a lot out of working in an intellectual environment. They're really relishing the intellectual challenge when you're just entering into the first stages of your PhD, the students who are at their earlier stages are really enjoying the people that they're working with, meeting the new people and finding them really stimulating environment as well. The survey does reveal some slightly more negative data around the levels of satisfaction which seem to be dropping rather as the students are going through their PhD experience. That's often around the expectations they have around the guidance that they hope they're going to receive. Most of all around their careers, they seem to be really happy with the guidance that they're receiving related directly to their subjects of interest. But they're not receiving the careers advice that they want further down the line and where it becomes really important to them. If I was a, a supervisor, what message might I be getting and what tips might I be getting from the data about, you know, things I ought to find out more about so I can better support them? From the top line data that we're seeing, students are really looking for a lot more guidance around 
where their PhD could take them when they finish. There's a lot of anxiety about job insecurity when they've finished and that's a real concern for them and that's really likely to be contributing to these drops in satisfaction later on. Anything that surprised you? We, we also asked about mental health, didn't we? And um, I think the figures initially looked very stark there, but tell us about those. We found that there is a real concern amongst PhD students about their mental health as a result of their PhD study. So in the question where we asked them about what concerned them most, 28% did select that as one of their major areas concerned. Following that, 5% also selected as their very top area of concern. So that is significant and it does suggest that there's, you know, there's a, an impact of PhD study on stress and anxiety levels. So of the, of the students that identified having concerns around their own mental health, and just looking more generally at the data, what sort of things do you think might be causing this concern and be leading to them being anxious about their PhD? The survey findings did find some strong feelings among students that they were anxious about their work-life balance. Work-life balance was seen as a key driver to satisfaction that students were feeling with their degree, and it was one of the areas that they were actually least satisfied with. So that's something which is likely to be contributing to these feelings of anxiety and stress. There was also some signs that the um, hours that PhD students were working had increased since the timing of the last survey in 2015. So in the 2017 survey, fewer students were selecting the higher bands of hours they were working on their PhDs per week, and that possibly could also be contributing to um, the general feeling of stress and anxiety that they're feeling especially later in their PhD journey. And on a related note, we also asked for the first time about cognitive enhancing drugs, whether that was an issue and whether they were taken at routinely or, or at stressful periods. T tell us about the finding there. Only a very small number of students were taking cognitive enhancing or smart drugs. 3% said they had taken them ever before. Within that, many of them were taking them at times when they were particularly stressed or when they had a particular deadline or something, you know, later on in their journey. Well, Jenny, that's been a fantastic sort of insight into the 2017 survey. And um, for those of you that are interested in actually drilling down into the data, as I said, it is attached to the um, careers article that we published last month. Thank you very much, David. That was David Payne speaking to Jenny Kedros. You can read more about the results of the survey in the article titled Graduate Survey, A Love-Hurt Relationship on the Nature Jobs website. And you can dig deeper into the results via Figshare if you search for Nature Graduate Survey 2017. Career satisfaction is a big driver behind many of our career choices, and yet it often comes when we least expect it. Jack Leeming, our Nature Jobs editor, had a chat with Juan Delgado head sports scientist and applied neurotechnology specialist in the New York Sports Science Lab in Staten Island in New York. His career didn't quite turn out the way he had planned it, but he found another path, and that has had some big impacts on his work and his life. So you use um, as neurotechnological devices to uh, help athletes improve their sports performance? Exactly. And not just athletes. Uh, we do treat a lot of kids with autism and um, different uh, developmental disorders. And that same technology that a lot of athletes can use, it can also be used with this kind of situation. So this kind of uh, kids, uh, they have problems with the developmental disorders. So the newer technology area, it's very broad. Could you explain a little bit more about how that works? Let me just give you an example. Uh, we use something that works with the same principles of music as a metronome. In a kid with autism, 
they do have uh, a lot of communication problems. They have repetitive motion problems. Uh, they have social interaction problems. And those, a lot of them, the times are given by the amygdala. Uh, the amygdala is an area of the brain that is controlling the emotions, behaviors, and motivation. A lot of the theories with autism is that they either have too much synapses, or the synapses is working too much, or it's not working at all, or it's working less. So what we do with these neural technologies is help the brain coordinate better those synapses by doing repetitive motions, by doing repetitive actions with that metronome. Another that we do is um, we use uh, target match-based games. So they feel a little bit more comfortable than they do this repetitive routine that is going to help them coordinate better with their brains. And it actually applies the same, the same way with um, sports. In sports, everything is about timing, right? For example, you have a wide receiver who, um, if he doesn't actually time well jump, he's going to miss the ball. I'm British, I'm afraid. You're going to have to switch analogies. Oh, switch analogies. Oh, my God, you're going to do those, right? <laughs> okay, so... <laughs> it's basically soccer or nothing, John. I'm sorry. Only soccer? Well, um, soccer or nothing. Okay, so... If you have a, um, a penalty kick, right, and your timing is not correct, your shot is going to be either too low, too slow, too fast. You can do a Roberto Baggio and going all over the, the goal. <laughs> it happens. Or you can just literally miss it. And it's not just for the, sh the, the kicker, but also for the goalie. If the goalie doesn't have good timing, you kind of they go from one side to the other. So when we do that and we do repetitive, actually directed repetitive exercises with neural technology, we're actually getting that timing better. We help them to get a faster timing, a better timing. So their brain can actually connect in a better way. All the synapses from the brain connect in a better way with the muscles in what we call neuromuscular re-education. I've had a lot of um, good results with um, athletes, for example, doing training and doing the, the timing training. Um, and in terms of the autism, I also have very good uh, results with people, with kids, different ages as well. So I'm, I'm thinking there's two really extreme sides of a, the spectrum, I suppose, when you're talking about the work you do. You know, on one hand, you're helping athletes get better, but you're using the same technique as, as of course, we've been talking about to help kids with developmental disorders. And I'm wondering, you know, which one of those do you particularly enjoy? Is there anything you're especially proud of? Well, I actually enjoy them both. Um, when, you, when you're working with athletes, especially when you're working with young athletes, right, young athletes, they come here to get an edge. They come here with hope. They didn't have the chances outside, and you give them those tools. You help them be better. You motivate them to be better, and they succeed. That's a huge reward for me. When you're talking about autism, you know how difficult it is, right? Kids with autism, they're not easy to deal with in terms of social interaction. Seeing a parent cry because the kid, it's not aggressive anymore, because he can actually start a conversation with you, remember what they did before, and wanting to be here, that's a huge reward for us, for me personally. Of course, and it, it sounds like you found real meaning from your work, and I, I was wondering, yes, I do. Yeah, how, how did you start on that? Were you ever looking for this kind of job when you started off as a scientist? I was uh, working before helping develop different techniques for um, reducing the time of recovery after a surgery, uh, whether it's an ACL reconstruction or um, uh, knee replacement in elderly people. I decided to come here to get a fellowship in orthopedics, and unfortunately it didn't pan out. Uh, but I discovered uh, sports science 
which is basically uh, very, very close to what I used to do before. I started doing the sports science, uh, and we started creating this sports science lab from the, from scratch. I got my degree in biomechanics as well and neurotechnologies. So everything fell into place. It's like I was meant to be doing this job. What advice would you have to, to other scientists to find a similar satisfaction in their work? My father, he told me when I was a kid, when you loved your job, you never work a day in your life. And that's true. A lot of the times, uh, we as scientists, we want to be in a place where we can make money. Uh, you want to be in a place where you can be successful, you can be famous. That's okay. But you have to love what you do. You have to be proud of what you're doing, of all the things you see they are going well. And you have to learn from your mistakes as well, because not everything's going to go the way you want it. That was Jack Leeming speaking to Juan Delgado. And you can read more about Juan's work and sports science careers in Smarter, Not Harder, published in Nature in September this year. And now on to our Ask the Expert section of the podcast. This week's question comes from a speaker at the 2017 London Nature Jobs Career Expo, which happened in early October. Esther Melio Herras, originally a postdoc researcher and now working at Roche Partnering, wants to know more about how she can prepare herself for future careers. Where is the market moving? Of what is the, where, where are we going to be looking for in five years' time, in ten years' time? So that I could prepare myself to see, to, to be ready in the market so that I am eligible as a candidate. Our science careers expert for this month who will be answering the question is Dr. Nana Lee. She's an assistant professor in the biochemistry department at the University of Toronto in Canada. So, Nana, over to you. Regardless of discipline, the best core competencies to be market ready for any candidate are one, scientific thought leadership, two, flexibility in the ability to learn new science and solve problems, and three, people management, which includes networking. How do you prepare these skills? You can cultivate your excellence in your field, read widely from journals and company press releases, attend talks in and outside your research, talk to scientists in and out of your field, initiate collaborations with them, mentor younger students, take workshops on conflict management and negotiation, Organize a group or a cause, start an initiative, become the whole scientist. So to reiterate, number one is scientific thought leadership, two, flexibility, and three are people skills. These skills, along with effective communications and marketing yourself, such as resume and cover letter writing, will empower you to be market ready. What about those who are already in industry? Do those skills apply to them as well? Oh, yes. I mean, you still have to, uh, let's say you want to have a career shift, you still have to go outside the comfort zone of your box, right? Um, And some people, even if they are in a first professional level, they may not be comfortable with conflict management and negotiation um, and leadership. So these are core competencies that you can work on forever if you think about it but the more you work on them the more broad your opportunities will become thank you to dr esther melior heras for asking this month's question and to dr nana lee for answering it
Don't forget, if you've got a science careers question, we can help you find the answer. You just need to send your question to naturejobseditor at nature.com and we will do our best to find a science career expert to answer it for you in one of our future podcasts. But that's it for this month. You can follow more of the Nature Jobs adventures on the blog at blogs.nature.com forward slash naturejobs, on the website at naturejobs.com, on Twitter at naturejobs, and of course on Facebook. Thank you very much for listening. I'm Julie Gould. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.